Hello and welcome to the 2018 Sight and Sound BFI Flare podcast. We're here to talk about this year's edition of BFI Flare, the London LGBTQ Plus Film Festival, which ran from the 21st of March to the 1st of April at BFI Southbank. My name is Ben Walters. I write about queer cinema for Sight and Sound, um, The Guardian, and other places. And I'm very happy to be joined today by Tara Brown, who's a queer black femme curator who programs for the Fringe Film and Arts Festival, and with Keith Jarrett, queer poet, performer, researcher, and writer. And we're going to try to cast an eye over this year's Flair Festival and what we all made of it. So this is the first year that Flair has been branded as the LGBTQ plus film festival. The Q plus is new to 2018. And I think there's been a bit of a sense this year that the festival has made some significant strides towards broader, wider, deeper inclusion of the multiplicity of queer communities going on in London that are engaged with film culture. There was some really interesting stuff in the programme this year around QTPOC programming, around um, disabled queer programming, something of an uptick in lesbian programming, which shouldn't seem like a minority interest within LGBTQ+. And yet here we are. And yet here we are. Um, So... Yeah, we had RISE, the Cutie Pop Representation and Visibility in Film Day, which was a series of panels and screenings to really kind of bring Cutie Pop queer film engagement and production to the fore. There was the sold-out package, Fighters of Demons, Makers of Cakes, around um, disabled LGBTQ plus filmmaking. Other films engaged with disabled subjectivity in the festival, Pulse, Stunt, Love Scott... And overall, that sense that we sort of always have with Flair of it being a kind of pop-up community centre. Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful. You kind of, you come in because you know your friends will be there. And it's a time of year where you know your friends will be in a certain space in London for a week, which is kind of impossible if you live in London and your friends are spread all over the place. So I kind of say it becomes London's biggest LGBT community centre for 10 days and it's quite magical. And then after community centre, it becomes a club. Perfect. Having having nights like Babes on, um, and knowing that there'll be people there shaking a leg, and playing, you know, Bashman and Afrobeat and different... And this is the South Bank BFI. It doesn't happen very often. That, I think, is a real success. So it's the club, the, the different ways and opportunities to mingle with people who are friends who or acquaintances. I saw so many people who I bump into time and time again but haven't had an opportunity to really interact with them until it's flair. And then I've seen you around a few times. Yeah, I know you. Yeah, I've seen you perform. I've done this. That's one of the great aspects of flair. And this year, I think they particularly went out of the way to to include uh, the word you use as multiplicities of queerness it felt much more I don't know open open. yeah Yeah, and even the building itself like you had all these extra sofas in the sort of the main Mm. big space and sofas across the sort of upper floors and suddenly people are kind of gathering in groups Mm. to meet up and people are actually organising socials around the fact that Flair is actually on this year I saw Keith 
at Flair more times than I've seen you in the last year. Yeah. It was it's like hey, he's here again. Yeah. It's great. Um, and you get people like DJ Ritu who does the amazing Club Carly thing, which is all the way over in North London and then it kinda of comes to South Bank all the time and then everyone kinda of packs in and there's people sort of dancing all over the space. And then the close mic party itself was amazing. Yeah. Because that big reception area became full of dancing queers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, think, I think that was the first time. Definitely. Yeah. It had really fully occupied that kind of main atrium space yeah. of BFI South Bank, which is which is a big space and yeah. it's often I mean I kind of love that building, but it's often got a kind of brutalist echoing emptiness or at least a height to it yeah. whereas with the closing night for Flair this year it felt really occupied and lived in yeah. and queered it's a real journey because before it used to be in an external you know site it used to be like you used to try and find clubs to you know hire out and then they were kind of closed off on the bars or the front bars yes. so I think we took a bit of a risk this year by sort of opening out and I think it's paid off yeah. I think they've always really struggled to get people in and I think they kind of like when they really open it out to all different types of people to come I think they've actually realised that people will, will come and they will fill that space so I think I mean I think it's really interesting that we're talking about the social, the civic yeah. function of the festival rather than the texts of the films <laughs> yeah. so far. And to ask a leading question, we might sort of hope here we are in 2018 and you know we're told, well, we've got marriage equality and we've got this, that and the other you know, moves towards equality and all the rest of it. What is the continued role of flair as a civic queer institution, apart from the fact of, of bringing together all these films from around the world, which we will talk about. But, I mean, how important is it that it functions as this this kind of drawing together of these kinds of queer energy and investigation and, and sociality? I'd say, yeah, more, more so than ever, and particularly because I did go to the programme Fighters of Demons, Makers of Capes, which was the deaf and disabled programme, and they had a poet always rely on the poets um, Sandra <laughs> Allen was the guest programmer for that and in the Q&A afterwards there were a lot of people who were very almost angry with the, the lack of consideration of people with different kinds of disabilities and challenges and finally having a programme in a space where they feel not only included but actively welcomed and actively encouraged to take part and one of the things that they did for that screening was to not turn the lights all the way down to be aware of people with mental health conditions and all of that and it's all well and good having a film festival but when a lot of them are online anyway or if they have had a lot of money invested in them they'll be in the cinemas anyway having a festival like Flair like moving on and it needs to foster that community atmosphere even more than the films themselves. The films are almost an excuse to come to together to the to the space. That's how I felt anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And building on on that, you know, people would organise groups and social groups will organise themselves on Facebook to come for a particular screening. So I was talking about Brown's Warm's Colour, which was a sort of South Asian queer film programme which sold out twice and had to be added on Sunday again. People kept packing it out. And 
friends would organize sort of these queer Asian social groups where have special meetings just because the film was on. So I think it's absolutely essential. And I think it's interesting, I think BFI Fair sort of is um, taking a note from the DIY film festivals that are running as well. So things like whatever DIY Film Festival, Fringe, Art Fest, um, they've always done, they've always they already had the, the BSL interpretation for mm-hmm. events and, and the audio description and sometimes a relaxed seating mm-hmm. and checking on the prices of tickets. That's been there and the sentence that we'll take over a building and make it into this sort of space for the time that we have. So I think they kind of seen what that can be and sort of bring it into the beautiful South Bank area. And look what it's done. I think it's I think it was a real improvement. And so that's your sense, Tara, as someone who is involved with programming some of these fringe festivals, you do get a sense that the grand institution of the BFI is taking these sorts of things more seriously. They've noticed us, yeah. <laughs> 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 well, and I feel like maybe that's a that's a nice link to to one of the events that took place, which is one of the the flair programmers, Jay Bernard, uh, presented the the event Radfem Trans, a love story, which was this kind of collection of clips and contextualization around. I think it's fair to say, sort of kind of loosely structured around the sort of simmering tension between radical feminism and trans activism that we've seen in certain ways coming to quite acute uh, points of conflict, if not contact, in recent years. And to me, one of the things that was really powerful about that event was the way that Jay framed these things Mm. as, in some ways, the latest iteration of this dialectical Mm. tradition within queer culture and civics of disagreement in a hopefully in a constructive way of what Sarah Shulman might praise as conflict not being abuse that there should and we hope will be these spaces to come together to disagree to express frustrations but in the hope that better ways forward remain possible rather than in the kind of way that we see, I guess it's a cliche to say it, but particularly online, yeah. where it's just this kind of loggerheads and yeah. the idea of, well, I think this and you think that and you're awful yeah. and I've got it right. So I think that was an event that I think really kind of put into relief this idea of the vitality of having places to say, maybe there's a problem here and maybe we should talk about it together. And it wasn't a bloodbath. <laughs> and it wasn't a bloodbath. It was actually quite... Quite nice. And in fact, like, I've kept hearing that people say they want it to continue. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting because we're talking about the civic thing again, about sort of this society, and I think the fact that it was a space people knew and that all sorts of people would come to who wouldn't necessarily mix could come to the same space, the same BFI film room and actually talk these things through and sort of feel like, you know, that Jay facilitated it brilliantly to kind of make it happen. And do we think, in terms of sort of how the festival played out as a whole, what do you think that element of Flair trying to be more proactive, trying to be more diverse and inclusive, as the buzzwords have it, <laughs> I mean, what do, you, what do you think that signals for where Flair might head in the coming years? I suppose particularly thinking about it in a kind of wider hmm. political, social funding context of what else is going on in London, in the UK, in the world... I'd come back again to the Deaf and Disabled programming. They decided they were going to get a guest programmer for that. And some of the discussion, again, were from people who said, you know, I've been part of the deaf community or the disabled community for years and felt ignored by the queer community or that we've got our own subspace. And finally, 
we're having a program <laughs> despite having existed and but also some of the films weren't explicitly about being queer per se that wasn't necessarily the focus we do have equal marriage and loads of things and quite established tradition of queer film and so now something like flair what it can do if it's brave enough is to reach out and look at go beyond the okay we're going to do a coming out story we're going to do an age story we're going to do a lesbian vampire series again and we're going to do <laughs> you know <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> I mean, the Carmilla movie was one of the hot tickets of the festival. That's that's lesbian vampires, and that was like yeah. it was, was on fire. It was hot. <laughs> I mean, not my cup of tea, but I kind of felt very happy that all these sort of yeah. young girls were coming, being so excited, mm-hmm. and I really hope they kind of stuck around afterwards and realised there's so many babes and mates and things to do in other films they can see. Yes. <laughs> I really hope they'll come back next year and bring that energy again. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about the film. <laughs> well, the film, which I, and I didn't actually see the film, so I'm not going to talk about the, the film, the substance <laughs> of the film, but it seemed really interesting to me that with the Carmilla movie, you know, this is essentially a web series which now finds cinematic feature form and then brings its own sort of already existing dedicated fan base Mm. into this group Mm. experience and it's people who sort of by definition have been engaged with this thing and loving this thing pretty much on their own in their bedrooms more or less with a bit of wiggle room and then it seems to me really powerful what happens then when you bring that into you know a 400 capacity cinema and let people love that thing together even if it might not be everyone's cup of tea yeah it's like seeing NFT1 packed out with this film it's just, it was just kind of, it was a bit magical in its own way I am really and it's, I think it is for dream because there are so many you know queer web series used in London um, you know just for different for girls um, and they probably all have and it's amazing that it kind of starts with this very sort of DIY crowdfunding style thing of you know we'll make this thing happen if we have to and then it kind of finds its people and then the people make it into something even bigger I think it's mm. probably the dream I imagine you know for <laughs> any sort of fan of, um, of a multitude of, um, of, of a queer web series mm. well yeah because we have we're at this I think really interesting point with queer cinema TV, moving image culture, that we have these avenues for things to kind of emerge from grassroots, lived experience, and in a DIY kind of way, bubble up. And then at the same time, sort of on the other end of the spectrum, we have these quite impactful incursions into mainstream moving image culture. So in a flare context, I'm thinking of things like 120 BPM, the film about um, ACT UP in Paris in the 90s and Love, Simon, which is the 20th Century Fox-funded teen high school comedy about a gay teenager. You know, and those are both showing within Flair, but neither of them needs Flair. They both have lives outside of it. They're both 
focused on gay, cis, white, able-bodied men. And they both have not quite a built-in audience, but they both have a trajectory and a momentum that's going to get them noticed. But at the same time, to me, it was interesting that they kind of sat in tension that they had, that you have Love, Simon, which is really quite a sort of feel-good accommodation list kind of, oh, the gays are just like everyone else, and, and actually, no spoilers, but... You know, the narrative of that really is about this teenage queer who's put in a very invidious position and then basically made to feel guilty for having to deal with the stresses of trying to negotiate coming out and social expectations. And then you have something like 120 BPM, which is this, to me, much more capacious, radical, queer vision of a kind of oppositional civics and a way of of being and loving and supporting which stands against that kind of assimilationist sort of model. But in in a broader sense, you have, you know, that all of these things sit within flair, yeah. that there's a sense of flagging up and, and participating in this bigger mainstream engagement with LGBTQ plus subjects, but yeah. also a sense of boosting some of these more grassroots yeah. things. So what's what are your thoughts about, does that all sit in happy tension? Is it a big tent or are there, are there things to, to be mindful of? Um, I think within BFI Flair, it doesn't take over. Like, no one had... The hot ticket was never 120 BPM or Love, Simon. It was mm. always a sort of... It was like a sort of... Just an obvious thing to sort of include within it for people who... You might be a bit nervous, maybe, about seeing all these mysterious queer films in this place. Ooh, I've never been before, what did I do? Um, <laughs> and think about... I mean, Love, Simon... The marketing for it's been very interesting. Try to make it sound like it's the first big gay films ever been made, which I find really frustrating. It's obviously not true. I mean, you seem to forget about Moonlight somehow, winning mm. the Best Picture Oscar. I don't know how that happened. Um, <laughs> but I think about watching it BPM, I find more interesting. I think even though it definitely had a life of its own, it's also inspired a lot of really just in programming around AIDS, mm. around the sort of campaigning around AIDS sort of healthcare and radical politics that came up in that time. And you know, they had a whole day of it mm. in BFI Flair. Mm. And then there's um, French, French, I'm sorry again, sort of did an event in Curzon recently and other places have done talks and things. So and Brian Robinson, one of the programmers at Flair, did a really interesting talk using various clips from films engaged with HIV and AIDS over the years. Yeah, yeah and they actually showed some old films about AIDS were shown at the yeah. time. So yeah. I think that actually had the much better integration with Flair than Love, Simon, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. But I think even with something like Love, Simon there's something a bit different about watching a film like that with a queer audience, which is the kind of thing that you do get at Flair, which you're not going to get at the Cineworld or the Odeon. Mm. And just in terms of that balance, again, between, between different approaches to queer subjects, I think even within the kind of queer festival context or independent production context, to me it was quite interesting, some of the titles that were on at Flair seemed to me to kind of settle into a couple of points of tension. So I thought, on the one hand, a film that had a certain amount of momentum behind it, having um, picked up the Teddy Award in Berlin, Hard Paint, um, Brazilian film, and also another South American film, Marilyn, which also came with a certain amount of kind of critical acclaim, which to me were sort of hard going, I'll be honest. But both of those films... So, I mean, both of them, in their different ways, basically engage with, with protagonists who are very much at the sharp end of yeah. 
of intersecting kinds of marginalisation and objection and having a rough old time of it, to put it mildly. Yeah. But to me, both of those films were layering it on with a trowel, yeah. to be blunt. I'm a bit curious about this idea of whether... I don't know if this is true or not, I just float it as an idea, but as we have these kinds of things in sort of North American and European cinema and this idea culturally that supposedly we're told the struggle for queer equality is over, mm. is there a sense of projecting queer misery onto these other parts of the world? And is there a sense possibly that some of these stories which really are unremitting in their positioning of queer suffering and queer exclusion and queer violence and queer abjection, is there a possibility that those are functioning as a kind of distraction technique and a sort of... It's not Orientalism because it's West, but whatever the term would be. I mean, that's just a thought that occurs that I float. Or sort of tourism of misery. Mm. I, I found... So I I didn't see Marilyn, but I did see Hard Paint. And I saw it on a day where I'd seen something the night before and saw something later on that day. I can't remember which way round. Everything's a bit of a blur. But that's when I started to come up with a bingo card of tropes, actually. (laughs) Um, And that is the thing I've quite glibly said a minute ago about this certain lesbian vampire film, the HIV AIDS film, the coming out story, all of those have been spaces of trauma or trying to slot into some kind of mainstream audience. And so then once you get rid of those, what have you got left? Where's the tension? You can't do a film without some kind of tension, Mm. wherever that comes from. And it felt to me, I mean, the violence in Hard Paint, and this, it's not really a spoiler. It's just in Hard Pain and also Alaska is a Drag and a few other things, there's like this sudden street, like from somewhere, someone comes and like mm. kicks the protagonist and then they end up in the proper like martial arts sequence, which is, <laughs> which is not particularly believable. And it's like, okay, it can happen once and I get it, but then it happens again. And it's a high budget film. It was very well paint? made. Hard paint the, yeah, the, within the, a festival context. Yeah, within yeah. that context, the cinematography is lovely. I'm not sure if they were sponsored by that region where it is, but they don't show it in a good light. But you can see. <laughs> um, but well, there's the thing on violence. But then for that budget, it does a few of those low budget kind of art film tricks of sort of when someone is longing then they're just staring into the space for like 10 seconds it's mm-hmm. like I get it you're missing this person and then it's there's it's probably raining outside and then, yeah well. right and it was oh there was so much pathetic fallacy it was unbelievable and there was sniffing bedclothes and like sniffing shoulders and oh, yeah. like you know oh I miss this person or whatever and after a while, it got really tedious because like, I get that you're in a tough space, but we're going to push it even further. We're going to mm-hmm. sort of turn sex work into a tool. It's either glamorised or either used as a kind of way to just show how miserable someone's mm-hmm. life is. Yeah, it was sort um, of like sex work yeah. as self-harm almost. Cause yeah. It was like a distraction tool of desperation and yeah. such. But I've said I didn't actually mind hard paint. I mean, yeah. all your criticisms do stand. The the pauses seem to get longer and longer, and you're sort of even many times sort of waiting rather mm. than watching the film. Mm. But I think what 
tipped hard paint from being into total sort of gay mystery was the sort of essential choice that the main character made. He made a yeah. choice to survive because yeah. he was in this space of being really bullied and taunted and such. And the bit we kind of talking to um, the court of police, being like, would have the bully have been arrested if I killed myself? Mm. Um, and he decides to sort of fight back and ends up very much wounding his bully. Mm. And then when he gets beat up, he tries to fight back then. Mm. And... In that sense, I think it kind of pushed that over the edge, maybe in the good films, like he made a choice to survive. And it does sort of end with like, okay, I've been beaten up over and over again. I've been forced to actually make a choice of what I'm going to do with my life. Am I going to keep staying miserable or am I going to dance and cover myself in neon paint yeah, and, like, and trying to move on and maybe actually leave the place that is making me sad, which I don't think really happens sometimes in films yeah. that kind of live in the gay misery yeah. as opposed to just trying to actually go from one place to another. Well, I think for me, some of the things that I really enjoyed in, in Flair this year were the films that really made that central. Because mm-hmm. I think with Hard Paint, that was in there almost as a suggestion to me. And whereas films like Alaska is a Drag, which you mentioned, Keith, or Infinino, My Own Private mm-hmm. Hell... Those were two films that I really enjoyed for the way that they structured the kind of queer drag dive bar as a real technology of hope and sort of utopian, shonky utopian <laughs> longing and presenting these sort of ideas of a sort of, in a way, almost putting resistance to one side, not to erase that as a reality of the lived experience of queer subjectivity, but kind of looking instead at, well, how do we actually start to construct Mm. ways of being individually and collectively that are built on different models and that aspire to different things and that, of course, resistance against violence, most importantly, but against all sorts of things, is indispensable. Mm. But that's not enough in itself. You have to then also start to think about, well, what will we try to build instead? And to me, Alaska is a drag and my own private hell, I sort of, I mean, neither of them were, I sort of hold up as as perfect masterpiece examples of cinematic art, but I loved them both for the way that they presented these spaces of possibility and openness and opportunity without at all glossing over the fact that they're kind of shonky and dilapidated and imperfect and have these built-in problems as well but that there's a, a sense of at least looking in the direction of something better I'm going to be slightly controversial I, I would say I would rather sit through Hard Paint again than Alaska's <laughs> oh. simply because actually with Hard Paint I agree the ending and the possibility and the soundscape was great Alaska is a drag, I had two big problems with it. The first is the fact that, again, I spend much of my time writing on my own, writing poetry and stuff no one will ever read, really. Um, (laughs) But then when it gets to film, it's teamwork, and the story needs to have other people's input, and I don't know how they got the dad's storyline 
past a group of people like mm. there's a complete shoved in plot line with this dad which is going nowhere and it was just it was almost cynically done oh let's get a dad who also happens to be struggling with his sexuality who also happens to be like children's tales there's always like an absentee parent and then one who's really horrible and the sister has cancer but the story in its own with him and his sister so was story, lovely really. it yeah. could have been so simple and that ruined it I just goodness sake and then the violence again which just like I get it like suddenly there's like kicks coming from nowhere and then like it happens again the next day and then the in next the same day, workplace in as the well. same pl- and it's and just, also how that yeah. was resolved really frustrated yeah. me it's sort of forgiving of the bully yeah I don't forgive my bullies in high school exactly. I stuck to them and I told them to F off and yeah. they effed off and also, it's also the same with like, oh, it's the self-loathing, possibly bisexual yes. sort and of thing. That's, that's, I think, that's, that's what, actually that's the, the thing that's, yeah. that, that should be on the bingo card. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because you get that, yeah. you get that in Alaska as yeah. a drag, you get that in Name freak shows, <laughs> yeah. you get that in Love, the Simon, <laughs> you get that in The Wound, this sort of idea of, of shifting the sympathy onto the poor, basically masked straight guy who's a bit curious about the D and yeah. then loses his rag a bit and oh, and, and then, and then yeah. becomes a bully and yeah. Yeah, makes yeah, yeah. their friend's life a living hell. Yeah. Yeah. But it's okay because they're like us. Well, yeah. well, or e- yeah. yeah, absolutely. Or even an even bigger question that I think certainly Love Simon opens up. I don't know that the film engages with it, but that I think there's still this real sort of queer cultural cringe around any filmmaking that represents any kind of queer desire or subjectivity mm-hmm. or identity then almost sometimes it's in a a conscious intentional thinking way sometimes it feels like it isn't but just to present that then seems to open up all this leeway to present these really problematic dynamics of violence of exclusion of all these really sort of you know these kinds of things that really should not be reproduced (laughs) but are, are framed and often welcomed and celebrated and loved by queer audiences yeah just because we're still so hard pushed for any kind of big screen representation. So anything that gets up there becomes seen as a good thing, even if actually a major part of the story is, oh, and shouldn't the queer kid be grateful for a bit of attention, even if it's from someone who then beats them up? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's because of drugs. I still did enjoy it for the dive bar, for Margaret Cho as for sort of beautiful, mean bartender, for seeing how they actually leave the place that's bringing them down and they actually get out at the end, for seeing them trawl through these sort of flea shops and finding perfect sequin dresses (laughs) in this (laughs) middle of nowhere Alaskan town, like, God bless them, for sort of sticking together for trying to do trying to be drag or a boxer whichever works yeah. quickest yes it's, it's <laughs> yeah. like it's that survivalism that I really connect with and really like so a lack of drag can be a bit of a drag but it's not all bad no it's not all bad that's <laughs> yeah. a thing like overall I enjoyed both of those but then I thought what would have some of those tropes 
are blown out of the water by a film like Good Manners, where it's like, wow, yeah. How do you describe Good Manners? Are you allowed? Well, I mean, that's yeah. like, there's a lot of spoilers. Like, formally, structurally, yeah. narratively, like, what can we say about Good Manners? Just that it blows everything out of the water, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, again, like, well, what can we say about Good Manners? We can say it plays with genre, it plays with time yeah. in interesting it's ways. It's, it's queer. Yeah. It plays with female sexuality. It's, it's another Brazilian film. Yeah. Like, a lot of really interesting stuff in this is program coming yeah. out of Brazil one way or another. It has supernatural elements. Yeah. It has class elements. Yeah. It has structural, almost kind of ballardian, science fiction, metro, yeah. dystopian kind of thing. And it has, again, without going to any spoilers... I didn't think it was a perfect film no. by any stretch. I love there's like they sing. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just in like a group chorus yeah. kind yeah. of way. Suddenly it's like, oh, now we're singing about yeah. the plot? All right. I love it. Yeah. And also, to me, the thing that will live with me from Good Manners is no spoilers, but the most cute, grotesque, absurd, adorable animatronic yeah scene which to me it's like it's worth seeing for that alone yeah. because then later there's a bunch of CGI yeah. in the film which to me was less interesting and less successful but there's like one really the heart of it is this material suffering threatening absurd grotesque beautiful horror all of that yeah and you don't get that every day yeah Will I ever be able to see Good Manners? Will I just be sad forever? I don't know. We hope so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's long. In terms it, of distribution, yeah. it's like, it's 20 minutes too long, I yeah. would say. Um, I agree. And that doesn't help your options for getting into cinemas. But I'm sure it'll be online. There'll be ways to see it if it doesn't get a theatrical yeah. release. But yeah, I don't know, Keith, is there anything else you wanted to say about Good Manners? I think that's all you, you did that really well without going into the plot too much but it was all over the place like it wasn't perfect and I left thinking hmm I don't want to dissect this too much because then I'm going to find a problem with it I just went with it and that's the thing like some of the films and that's why I like seeing short films you're like okay this is a film and this is how it's working and this is my bingo card and whatever <laughs> whereas with that I put the card I was like oh my god did just that happen <laughs> then I got involved in the story and then I felt sad and then I thought this is pathetic and then I, that, and that, it did all of the emotions and it wasn't just about queerness and it wasn't just about anything really it's a a mess but it's a it was great I left disturbed but joyous you've not seen anything quite like it no (laughs) and Tara was there anything else that we haven't talked about that you might want to flag up for our listeners I really enjoyed a film called The Feels it's a sort of lesbian bisexual comedy romance drama thing about women's orgasms which is great I think I actually relaxed and enjoyed it and laughed which doesn't always happen with (laughs) so-called lesbian comedies Um, (laughs) my favourite bit was the um, one of the structural things they did was that each of the characters had a sort of solo bit where they talked to the audience about their first orgasm and I really liked how I talked about the good and the absurd and the traumatic 
without going into the detail that would traumatize an audience, which many films need to learn from.、Mm. So many films will go into that detail and will just destroy you, and then try and make it funny again. But in this film, they're actually to use it to kind of set the tone of the film、mm. without actually making it feel uncomfortable or triggered or something. And I thought that was actually. I was so relieved to be in a space where that could happen, and it's and to talk about orgasms, and also to think there's a lot of tropes about where lesbian, bisexual women will go like, oh, once you go to women, you'll have the best orgasms ever. Like, haha, men can't do shit. Can I swear? No, men can't do this. But and then to actually find that the bisexual character in this sort of weekend of celebrating their sort of engagement lets loose that they've never had an orgasm. And suddenly, it's like everything's turned its head. It was actually really enjoyable. I had a really good time. Well, that seems like an appropriately climactic moment <laughs> to end things on. So there's plenty of excellent LGBTQ plus content to see on the BFI player. Much of it for free. Some of it not. So do check that out. And otherwise, a huge thank you to Tara Brown and to Keith Jarrett. I'm Ben Walters, and thank you for listening to the Sight and Sound. BFI Flare podcast for 2018.